I'd like to ask you if you would rise for the reading of God's scripture. This morning, Pastor Wayne will be speaking on verses 1 through 9 in, verse, in chapter 20 of John. And as he comes forward, this is how that reads. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone that had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes, cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Pastor Wayne comes forward now to preach this morning from this passage, we just ask that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we would hear your word clearly, that you would use Pastor Wayne in a way that he articulates and explains the scripture well this morning, so that we might be encouraged, we might be challenged, and um, convicted in a ways that we can carry forward, move forward, and honor you in all things we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this may come as a surprise to you, but apparently I'm filling in for sermon this morning. I just, oh, and now let's give a big hand for Pastor Wayne. Probably none of you have the kind of allergies that I have, but I've, <clears throat> let's just keep our Bibles open to John 20. After entering humanity at Bethlehem, launching a ministry that will prepare disciples for a church age that proclaims God's grace, having given undeniable proof of his divinity through supernatural miracles of every kind, I mean, Blind people are seen, lame people walking, demons are cast out, even the dead are raised. Christ returns to Jerusalem to complete the 355 prophecies fulfilled in his life. As he said, search the scriptures, they speak of me. He voluntarily gives himself over to sinful men who mock him, beat him beyond recognition, and ridicule him before he dies to the just wrath of God for their sin, redeeming them for God's glory. Say it at the end to tell us, die, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let me ask you, how do we know this was not just a martyr's death? How do we know that the just wrath of God was actually poured out on Christ during those hours of darkness in midday? 
How do we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that when Christ said it is finished, and that 60-foot high veil that was 9 to 10 inches thick is ripped from top to bottom all the way down, how do we know that provides undeniable proof that we can now access a holy God through Christ and know his blessing rather than the just condemnation we deserve. How can we be confident at that moment of our death when we enter into his holy presence, how can we be confident this is going to be a joyous occasion? What proof does the Lord give that Christ's death is the defeat of sin? And of Satan who introduced sin and to death that results from that sin. How do we know that he is the fulfillment of the promise the Lord made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3? What proof do we have that Christ, being fully divine, satisfied the wrath God's holy character demands? And being fully human without sin made atonement for us. I mean, how can we know the Bible is true? Why is it that eyewitnesses of his resurrection begin sharing the gospel with family and friends and, and co-workers and others at the synagogues on Saturday, but then begin to gather together on the first day of the week to worship together with one another? Why is that? You know, we have to keep in mind that John's whole purpose for giving us this. If you look at the end of the chapter, you see that he said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing have life in his name. Now, the Lord said in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, he will be cut off but made alive. Christ said destroy this temple, this body, in three days, I'll raise it again. Let, let's see what proof he gives us that the Bible is true, that he is the Christ, and that we have life for eternity in his name. Begin with verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, he says it's the first day of the week. Why? Some try to make an issue regarding Christ's statement that as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so I will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. And so then they scratch their head and they go, wait a minute, if he's crucified on a Friday, the day of preparations before the Sabbath, and then he leaves the tomb on Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, how do you get three days and three nights out of that? Well, you begin with what does the expression three days and three nights mean? Why is it that Israel considered any part of a day to be the whole of the day? Well, first of all, you have to understand that they didn't have names for their days like we do. They numbered their days. They numbered their days. We still use this same um, thinking today. You know, if I say I'm, I'm going to Cincinnati for three days, I drive up on Friday, I come back on Sunday, that's three days. You go, yeah, I, I get that. But why is it that, that they considered 
any part of a day, the whole of it, if it says three days and three nights. Well, they numbered their days based on creation. What did the Lord say? He created, and it was evening and morning the first day. He created, it was evening and morning the second day. He created, and it was evening and morning the third day. Right? And then at the end of six days, he rested in the sense that he stopped creating, and it was the Sabbath. Well, that's how they numbered their days. Evening and morning, one day. So any part of that day, though, was considered the whole of that day, just like we refer to it in that way. And so when Christ was crucified on the day of preparation, that's the day before the Sabbath, what we call Friday, his body is in the grave throughout the Sabbath and is reunited with his spirit at some point the first day of the week, which is the day after the Sabbath. So this is a significant point that John makes here. It's the first day, Sunday, what we call Sunday. And this day actually began 12 hours before daylight because that's how they counted a day, evening and morning. It began at sundown. And so 12 hours before Mary arrives at the tomb, half of Sunday is gone. So when you read Matthew's account, who's writing to the Jews, Mark's account, who's writing to the Romans, Luke's account, who's writing to the Greeks, you see that other women came to the tomb that morning. But Mary is the first to arrive. And John points out it's still dark. In other words, by the time the sun appears over the horizon, half of the first day of the week is gone. The day we call Sunday. It's going to end after 12 hours of daylight. And at sunset, it will begin the second day of the week. So John says, look, it's still dark. Others say in their gospel accounts, it was daybreak. And so, you know, people will ask, all right, now who's right here? Well, they're all right. They're all right. Well, then why are they giving us different accounts? It's proof. Don't you see that? It's proof that these eyewitness accounts are not collaborating together to manufacture a hoax. The sun obviously has broken the horizon in the eastern desert. But that eastern desert where the sun is coming up is behind the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives leaves darkness over the garden where this tomb is located. And so John tells you it's still dark. While Matthew says towards the dawn of the first day. In other words, the sun has broken the horizon on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And we know from the record of the other gospel records that women who supported Christ's ministry, who were there at the cross when he said, To tell us die, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They heard that. They saw that. They watched as his body was prepared for burial. And so now they are returning to the tomb. They've been supporting Christ's ministry all along. Um, it's mentioned that Mary of Magdala arrives first. She's the lady that Luke records that, that Christ heals. And out of gratitude, she financially supports his ministry with the first fruits of her income. 
And though she is from that northern region called Galilee, she's in Jerusalem for Passover. And she, with the other women, is at the cross when Christ dies. She, with other women, come now to the tomb midday through Sunday at daybreak. And while the direct light hasn't yet come over the Mount of Olives, there's enough light to see the stone that covers the opening of the tomb has been removed. Now, you and I know that Christ doesn't need the stone to be removed. We know, because we read later in this chapter, that when he comes to the disciples, they are locked behind closed doors. And he doesn't even bother opening the door. He just comes to them. You say, well, why is that significant? Well, that may be a, a good indication of what the molecular structure of our resurrected body is going to be like. I mean, we, we know that, this, that, that at our resurrection, we will be recognizable. And we know that it's not going to be the same body that we have now because these bodies don't last for eternity. They have been made from dust and to dust they shall return. And so what is that body when we are raised or when we are transformed at his second coming? What's that body going to be like? I think if you look at the resurrected body of Christ, you begin to get some inclination of what it's going to be like. Matthew lets us know that an angel was the one who removed the stone, not for Christ to get out, but for men to get in. And that should not be surprising to us because the Lord used angels for the annunciation of Christ's conception by the Holy Spirit to Mary. He used angels to announce to the shepherds the fulfillment of his incarnate arrival in Bethlehem, didn't he? Angels are present with Christ as he prepares to, to, uh, to start his ministry in this fallen world, a, a, a spiritual warfare that is going to be present every day of his ministry. We see angels are present with him in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepares to drink from the cup of wrath that provides for our atonement. And so it's not really surprising to see that angels are present at his resurrection and they will be present at his ascension and they will be present at his second coming. The only place you don't see angels, the only place you don't see them is at the cross. Now Christ could have called down 12 legions of angels, not that he needed that many, because we saw back in the Old Testament, one angel, one angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers 700 years earlier when Hezekiah repented and he was delivered from Sennacherib's attack the next morning. One angel. Christ had legions of angels at his disposal. And he turns them away to fulfill all the scripture taught concerning our atonement, which, by the way, has been predestined by the Lord before the foundations of the world. And as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Christ was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Crucified on the day of preparation, that's the Friday before the Sabbath, and raised the first day of the week after the Sabbath, the third day, Sunday. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's the way John refers to himself, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Well, it's pretty obvious 
Mary was not anticipating a resurrection, nor was she and the other women. Um, and there are other women, evidently, because she uses the pronoun we. <laughs> we are not part of a plot to fake the resurrection. It's pretty obvious. Mary doesn't know the Sanhedrin had no plans to steal the body. Matter of fact, just the opposite. The Sanhedrin has requested that a Roman guard be posted and that they seal the two and a half ton stone at the entrance of the tomb. And that's going to be a, a crime punishable by death to break that seal, which Emperor Claudius later explains. It's against the law, against the law, the Roman law, to break that seal and to rob a grave and remove a body from a tomb. However, when an angel removes the stone, they obviously lack jurisdiction to charge him with a crime. Yeah, have you ever wondered what happened to the Roman guard? Well, if you want to know, you can read about it uh, in Matthew's account to the Jews in chapter 28. It says that the guards come, to the, to, come into the city of Jerusalem to tell the chief priest what took place. And here's what they said. This guy, this guy, I mean, his appearance was like lightning. His clothing was as white as snow. He literally caused the ground beneath us to shake. We were terrified, paralyzed. We were like dead men. He's the one who opened the tomb. And then he sat on it as if to mock our authority. And that's not even the worst part. The worst part is there was no body inside. The body was gone. He's gone. This is very disturbing. I mean, it's the worst possible thing to happen. I mean, this is the entire purpose for having the tomb sealed and the guard posted. Members of the Sanhedrin Remember that he said, tear down this body and I'll raise it in three days. And so in their minds, somehow, some way, somebody has taken his body to make it seem as if he actually did what he said he would do. And now this, who is this guy that is able to remove that stone? and is sitting on it in mockery of Roman authority. Who is this? It's very troubling. So they meet together, they're in panic mode at this point. And they decide, well, the only thing that we can do, I mean, there's nothing we can do about that, that guy who opened the tomb, but, but as far as explaining the body, the body, the body is gone. How are we going to explain that? Well, we're going to say, and we're going to have to have the guard's cooperation on this. We're going to pay them a significant amount of money to support our alternative explanation for why his body is gone. Now, you got to remember, the guards are still traumatized by what has occurred. And now they're going to be asked to lie in a way that incriminates their character and denies their training and questions their professionalism as soldiers. They're being told if anyone asks, if anyone asks about what happened to his body, you tell them you fell asleep. All of you fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. 
And if the governor threatens to punish you, even kill you for falling asleep on the job, we'll take care of him. We've got him over a barrel. Don't worry about him. He's beholden to us. You cooperate with us and we will protect you. Stick with the plan and nothing bad will happen to you. Now, if I'm one of those soldiers, I'm thinking to myself, how are we going to make this believable? I mean, really, how are we going to make people believe this? We're going to say that all of us who know as soldiers to sleep on the job doesn't result in court-martialing, it, it, res it results in execution. H how are we going to say that we all fell asleep? Though we've been trained not to sleep on the job. And though they know that we should be executed for falling asleep and yet we're not going to be executed, how are we going to explain that? And that's what we're supposed to tell everyone? Matthew says to this day, as he records his eyewitness account, that that lie is still going around. And you know what that tells me? That proves to me that people will believe what they want to believe, even if it's unbelievable. I mean, here's your evidence. That self-imposed spiritual blindness is a moral issue. Fallen men choose to believe what they know is not true. This is incredible. I mean, how could sleeping guards see who took the body? And if you fell asleep, why have they not executed you? You're telling me that these Galilean disciples who are nowhere to be found because they're locked behind closed doors, frightened, that these are the guys who came in the, in the dark hours of the early morning and while all of us were sleeping, they moved this two and a half ton stone so quietly, none of us were awakened. And they stole his body. How did you see that? And then they hid his body. And to support their hoax, they suddenly, suddenly with great courage, began proclaiming he is risen and are willing to die for it. What would they have to gain by telling a lie that leads to a martyr's death? You really think people will believe that? Look, the empty tomb that proves Christ's defeat of sin and of Satan who introduces it and the death that it brings is attested to by angels, it's attested to by men, it's attested to by women, it's attested to by soldiers, it's attested to by the Sanhedrin and by the disciples. This is a fact that is well established in history. The tomb is empty. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, talking about John, and they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple, talking about John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, why does he tell us that? John is, is recording this years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. And, um, and so, I mean, John probably, given the date that he's writing this down for us, it may have been the youngest or at least one of the youngest of the disciples. We know Peter had to have probably been older because he was already married. And the reason we know he was already married is that, is that, the, is that Christ heals his mother-in-law in Luke uh, 4. 
being older, he might have also been heavier. I don't know. But John wants us to know, listen, I'm an eyewitness to what I'm recording for you. And we're going to see why that's important here in just a moment. Luke says that um, other women are arriving before Peter and John get there. And they're, they're bringing additional spices. Because after a body is in a tomb like that, the whole purpose for the spices is to, is to counteract the smell of the decay. And so when they arrive, they see two angels. And one of the angels says to them, I know you seek Jesus of Nazareth, but why? Why? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Go tell his disciples he is risen. And he's going to go before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Luke says that the angel reminds them, Christ told you this, didn't he? That he'd be delivered into the hands of sinful men, that he'd be crucified, but on the third day would rise? Didn't he tell you that? That's what he's done. And so these women, they take off to find the disciples. Whereas they're going to look for the disciples, here comes... Peter and John. Now Mark adds that these women were trembling. Matthew says that they were fearful, but they were full of joy, totally amazed. And the word for amazed there means they're just, they're just awestruck. And so you've got lots of eyewitnesses here, don't you? I mean, you've got angels, you've got women, you've got men who hated Christ in the Sanhedrin. You've got men who loved Christ in Peter and John. You've got men who didn't know Christ in the Roman soldiers. And the one thing they all agree is the body of Christ is not in the tomb on the third day. So here come Peter and John. And stooping to look in, he, speaking, John speaking of himself, the first to arrive, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he goes into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now keep in mind that Nicodemus brought almost 100 pounds of spices. They didn't embalm bodies in that day, but they wrapped them like mummies. And so they took these long linen strips and they applied this alloy to it that, that had a sweet smelling fragrance. And then they used myrrh this, this, this sticky gum-like substance to then wrap the body. And then they took more strips and put more spices on there and then with, gum, with myrrh would wrap the body. And they keep wrapping it and keep wrapping it and keep wrapping it. So anyone stealing a body, they wouldn't unwrap it. I'm not sure they could unwrap it. I mean, pulling off those strips with all that myrrh attached? How could you do that even if you wanted to do that? So his point is this, that Christ's body is not like that of Lazarus. Remember back in chapter 11? When Christ says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb, and he looks like a mummy. I mean, he's still got these wrappings all over him. They're stuck to him with myrrh. That's not the case here. These wrappings are still in the tomb. 
They're, they're looking at wrappings that are like a cocoon that has lost its butterfly. And the head covering, it says, is neatly folded. That's the word that, that means it's still in the same position around the head as when the body was first prepared. It's been undisturbed. So this is no grave robbery. This is a metaphysical event. This is something truly supernatural that has occurred. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, talking about himself, also went in and saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. John says that when he went in and saw the grave clothes, they believed. They believed. For as yet, up to that point, all Christ had taught them from the scriptures about that he must die, that he would rise again. They were having a hard time putting that all together. But now, those scriptures that he kept speaking of from the Old Testament, that he would fulfill, it's starting to dawn on them. Because, see, Jews expected the Messiah to reign. That's what they expected Christ to do. And instead, he allowed them to beat him beyond a point of recognition. They, he allowed them to crucify him. They ran a spear through his side to his heart. And then they buried him as if he was like any other man. And now they're standing here looking at this. And it's, he, he's supernaturally gone. He's gone. The wrappings soaked in spices attached with myrrh have not been removed. But the body is gone. And they remember, he said, tear down this temple in three days, I'll rise it again. And so they saw what he said is true. So before you leave this morning, let me just provide a couple of things to consider on this day that, that we specifically celebrate the resurrection of Christ, although we actually celebrate that every Sunday. But notice those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Those associated um, with Christ, associated Christ with his body. They associated Christ with his body. When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take his body off of the cross, when they wrap it with almost a hundred pounds of spices, they think that they have laid Christ in the tomb, but they didn't. They didn't. They laid his body in the tomb. One of our mothers told me last Friday morning during school, that her son asked, where did Jesus go when they put his body in the tomb? She said, that's a question Wayne's going to have to answer. And I said to her, that is a very perceptive young man that you've got there. Do you remember at the cross when Christ says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? That's when his spirit separated from the incarnate flesh that he had taken to himself in Bethlehem. They take that body, they lay that body in a tomb, but where did he go? Remember what Christ said to the thief next to him? He requested, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Christ said, this day, this day, you will be with me in paradise. Where's paradise? 
The unseen abode of the dead. We're not talking about hell. We're talking about just the, where, where the dead go. In the Old Testament, they called it Sheol. In the New Testament, the Greek word was Hades. Hades is not hell. Hades is the unseen abode of the dead. Christ talks about this in Luke 16. Says that, that, that this, this place of the dead is divided by a great gulf, the way he describes it. And on one side, he calls it Abraham's bosom. Because that's the way they talked in the Old Testament about when you died, you were, you were drawn to, the, the, uh, to your father's. And so it was known as Abraham's bosom, also called paradise. This is where those who died trusting in the Messiah to come now await his atoning sacrifice, that they might go into the holy presence of God and not be consumed by his, his wrath. On the other side is, um, is another place. Uh, many believe it's called Tartarus from, from what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.19. This is a place where those rejecting the Lord's means of redemption will await judgment. Now, according to Christ, he goes to the blessed side of Sheol, to the blessed side of this unseen abode of the dead, wherever that is. And many believe to, he, he's there to proclaim the fulfillment of their redemption. And that when he ascends into heaven, he takes those spirits with him. And they shall return with him at his second coming. And that, that this is, is where the thief on the cross, by the grace of God through faith in Christ, was reconciled with the Lord by Christ's atoning death. This is where he goes with Christ. Another point that has to do um, with the key word that I texted you about this week, as I was trying to help you prepare for today's uh, time of worship, I said, do you see the key word in verse 1, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8? It's the same word. Do you see it? It's the word saw. Do you see the word saw? Did you realize that there are three different Greek words that are translated saw in this text? Which helps explain a lot. It's why John says what he says in this, in this passage. Look at verse 1 and verse 5. That's the word that comes from blepo. Blepe means to glance. Mary glances at the tomb and saw the stone is gone. Verse 5, John glances in the tomb and saw the grave clothes and may have thought Mary is mistaken about the body being gone because I can see the grave clothes. He must still be in there. What am I going to do? He doesn't know what to do, especially if he's very, very young. He's confused. And so he waits for the older Peter to arrive. And in verse 6, Peter gets there and he goes into the tomb and he saw. Now that's the word from which, which we get the word theorize. He saw these grave clothes that had been removed from the body. How did that happen? The body is gone. And so he's theorizing what has happened here based on what is before him. The grave clothes are like they were when the body was still in them, but the body is not there. And so now John tells us, this is the whole reason that he, he constructs this, this text the way that he does. He tells us in verse 8, he now goes in and he saw. That's the word for examines. Investigates. 
perceives, understands. And why is this significant? Well, this is kind of a microcosm of our world today, isn't it? I mean, there are those today who just, they honestly, they're so wrapped up in their own little life here on this fallen little blue marble planet that they just glance at Christ at best. Might even just assume the eyewitness testimonies of the scripture are just not true. And then others, they go further. Oh, they theorize what must be taking place with the proofs that the Lord has provided. They're going to make money off of it the way the, the, the soldiers made money off the Sanhedrin. And I'm not talking about just guys like Dan Brown who, who constructed that fictional um, tale of uh, the Da Vinci Code that, that made him a lot of money off of his book, off his movie. It was very, very monetarily profitable for him. I'm not talking about guys just like, um, was it James Cameron, the, the Titanic guy, who, who claimed a few years ago, oh, we found the bones of Jesus outside of Jerusalem. Really? Yeah, got him a lot of airtime on the History Channel. Made him a lot of money. It was a total lie. And he finally admitted it was a hoax. He hadn't found the bones of Jesus. But it's not just them. It's not just them. A majority of fallen men reject the truth without ever really examining the evidence. And then there are some, there are some who do what John did. They examine the proofs the Lord provides. Uh, there's a guy, uh, Frank Morrison, that's not actually his, I, don't, I can't remember what his real name is, but that's his literary name. But he's the one who wrote, Who Moved the Stone? Uh, there was a guy, uh, J.D. Anderson, examined the evidence and then wrote a book, Evidence for the Resurrection. The one that probably you all would most likely recognize is a guy named Josh McDowell. You remember him? He's the one who uh, was going to write a thesis on the contradicting claims of Scripture because he, he wanted to prove there is no God. And the reason is, is because of how his father had treated him growing up. He just knew there could be no God that would allow him to have a father like that. And so he dives into the Scripture and he begins to examine the proofs the Lord has provided and ends up becoming not just a Christian, he ends up becoming a Christian apologist. An apologist is one who defends truth. It comes from the Greek word for truth, for defending truth. He, he ends up putting his findings in a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And then he wrote More Than a Carpenter and then he wrote a bunch of other books. And he's been traveling around to the various college campuses telling college kids who are being told that they just evolved out of nothing for no reason. He's telling them the truth well, John gives you his testimony that you might know that Christ is who he says that he is. And you might know him. And knowing him, you might have life for all eternity in his name. Do you know him? You know, there's a lot of evidence that the scriptures are accurate. A lot of evidence the tomb was empty. A lot of eyewitnesses. Angels, men, women, soldiers, Sanhedrin. The grave clothes don't lie. The faith of the disciples, the faith they have after they saw the resurrected Lord, changed them forever. You can read about James's beheading in Acts 12. We're told by history that Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia and Nathaniel was whipped to death in Asia. 
Thomas run through with a sword in India. Andrew was murdered in Greece. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil. I'm telling you, it was not in the DNA of these guys to die for a lie. These guys were cowards all through the crucifixion, all through the, the time, the three days that Christ's body lay in the tomb. They're hiding. They're scared. And then they see Christ and they're changed. They examined the evidence. They saw the proof the Lord provides. And when Christ says to Thomas, put your finger in the nail prints of my hands and thrust your fist into the gaping hole of my side, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Christ said, blessed are you, but... But more blessed is he who does not physically see my resurrected body, but has faith. By faith believes. Do you believe? Do you? For those who gather with us this morning who would say, well, well yes, I am a Christian. If you have faith in Christ, how has that changed your life? For whom are you living? For whom are you living? If you have questions about that, you can go to the Connect table. They'll be glad to get you connected with somebody who can certainly answer your questions and can help you. I hope you have a, a blessed day today. I, I know, thankfully, our culture has shut down most things so that you can just go home and eat with your family, and I would just encourage you not to eat too much or you'll look like me. Um, I hope that you have a blessed time in the name of our Savior. For indeed, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty and the consistency of your word particularly regarding the proofs that you've provided that indeed Christ is risen, that the scripture is fulfilled, that our salvation has been purchased, and that your holy and eternal name has been glorified. As a result, Lord, our hearts are filled with joy, filled with joy and gratitude. So we thank you that you have washed us in his atoning blood, that you have cleansed us with his sanctifying word. And as we leave this place of worship to proclaim the good news that he is risen, he is risen indeed, we pray, Lord, that you will go with us, empower us the way you did the, the first century disciples to live according to truth that you might be glorified through us. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.